Open your Bibles, if you would, to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, we're still in this first Christian sermon delivered by Peter on the day of Pentecost. We're looking specifically at Peter's statement about the death of Christ, the problem of evil, and the resurrection of the Son of God in verses 23 and 24. This is our last week on this sermon, and then next week, Lord willing, we'll talk about the response to the sermon. What do you do when you've heard the gospel? But let's read, starting in verse 22, how Peter announced the resurrection and the death of Christ on that Pentecost day. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know, Him, being delivered by the determined counsel and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. Let's pray. Father, it was impossible for your son to stay dead. Lord, so often we think the opposite, that it's impossible for the dead to come to life. And so it is for sinners, for the penalty of sin is permanent death. But the reward of righteousness, the reward for your son's righteousness is permanent life, such a life as kills death. Father, show us the magnitude and glory of of your plan of salvation. Show us the grandeur of your Son and show us above all the joy of his resurrection, the undoing of the consequences of sin through the suffering and death of the Son of God, but more than that, through his resurrection. Father, meet with us. Help us open our hearts to understand, illuminate our minds to receive the truth that's here in your word. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The book of Acts, as we have seen, is about the kingdom of God and specifically about the certainty of the kingdom. How do we know that Jesus reigns? Luke is writing these 28 chapters to explain to us, to vindicate to us, That Christ really is in charge, no matter what the circumstances appear to be saying about that. Christ reigns, the kingdom of God is here and is coming. And in this sermon, Peter actually dares to point to the crucifixion as further evidence that God reigns. Pretty amazing stuff. The fact that Jesus was crucified by God's plan and rose again by God's power shows that God rules and ordains even evil, though he never does evil. Peter points to the worst event in the history of the world and says this is evidence for the kingdom. 
Here is further proof that the Lord God Almighty reigns. So here in verse 23, Peter makes three pretty simple points. Well, I shouldn't call them simple. Three points that are utterly profound. We'll talk about those points and then the implications that they have for us on this Resurrection Sunday. Peter's first point, Jesus was handed over by God's plan. Him being delivered by the determined counsel and foreknowledge of God. All right. The grammar there is not a grammatical construction. We use a whole lot. It's a passive construction. Jesus is the subject, and he was handed over by this agent. And the agent, Peter specifies, is God's determined plan and foreknowledge. That's what handed Jesus over. He was betrayed. He was handed from one over to the other. In other words, Peter is presenting the problem of evil in its most acute form. Not why do bad things happen to good people. Not why do bad things happen in nature. But why do bad things happen to God Almighty? The best person in the history of the world suffered the worst evil. Why? Well, Peter doesn't hesitate to ascribe that to God himself. The determined plan and foreknowledge of God. God planned these events surrounding the crucifixion of his son. Now, how do you translate this? The King James has determinate counsel. ESV says definite plan. NIV says deliberate plan. The point is that it was the plan. And it was not a fuzzy plan. It was not a plan that included steps like wait and see what happens. Figure out what their reaction is going to be. Take an opinion poll before making the next step. No, the plan was a deliberate plan. It was a detailed plan. It was a plan that fully specified exactly what was going to take place. So Peter first describes it to the plan and then to the foreknowledge of God. Now what is the foreknowledge? We hear of foreknowledge and we think, well, that's simply knowing something before it takes place. For instance, I have foreknowledge today that at 9.30 a.m. Eastern tomorrow, the New York Stock Exchange will open. Now, does my knowledge that that will happen cause it to do so? Does that ring the opening bell on the Stock Exchange? No. I know that the Stock Exchange will open tomorrow because that's the announcement made by the folks who run that organization. That's their settled plan. We're open from 9.30 to 4, Monday to Friday, except holidays. So that's the settled plan of those operators, but my foreknowledge doesn't cause them to open the stock exchange. Peter, though, says God's foreknowledge caused the handing over of Jesus. 
God's knowledge, in other words, his foreknowledge is not based on the plans of Roman soldiers, chief priests, stock exchange operators, or anyone else. His foreknowledge is based on his plan. He looks at the plan and says, here's my plan for what will happen. This is how I know what will happen. Notice also this peculiarity of Peter's style. The determined counsel and foreknowledge of God you have crucified and put to death. Where else do we see this kind of pairing of words that Peter uses to mean the same thing? Well, he does this all the time in 2 Peter. Remember phrases like life, uh, life and godliness, glory and virtue, calling and election. Peter says those things all the time in his second letter. And here he's doing the same thing. The determined counsel and foreknowledge of God are really one and the same thing. How do we know that? We'll look at the end of the verse. You have taken, have crucified and put to death. Is there a major difference between crucifying and putting to death? As there would be between, say, hating and lifting. No, right. To say you crucified him and you put him to death are really two ways of saying the same thing. So it is with determined plan and foreknowledge. Two ways of referring to God's settled decision to do what he's going to do. His plan that involves not just planning his own actions, but also the actions of everyone else who's involved. So Peter uses crucify and kill to refer to one action, the action of killing Christ. And so he uses definite plan and foreknowledge to mean one piece of information in the divine mind. The information that God definitely planned that Jesus would be betrayed and killed in exactly the way in which the events took place. God planned on that. He knows his plan, and thus he knows the entire course of world history. What is Peter saying? If you want a demonstration that Jesus really reigns, if you want to know for sure that the kingdom is here, look no further than the cross. Because that is where God's settled plan manifested itself most clearly. And now this announcement is so breathtaking that a good many Christians openly doubt it. No, I don't believe in predestination. No, I don't believe that God has world history totally planned. What about free will? We're not robots. Not understanding that Peter is not preaching the good news of roboticism. He's preaching the certainty of the kingdom. God reigns. He reigns over all of his creatures in a way appropriate to that creature. Right? The computer chip bosses the robot in accordance with the mode in which the robot operates, which is according to strict logic-based instructions. God rules his people in a mode appropriate to the rational creature with free will. As Peter goes on to say, Peter is perfectly clear that God's plan handed Jesus over. Isaiah says the same thing. So does Paul. So does Moses. 
so did Jesus himself, right? No one takes it from me. I lay it down of my own accord. Not, I'm going to fight tooth and nail. I'm going to call the 12 legions of angels. Quite the opposite. God does not do evil, but he does plan it, define it, and set boundaries to it. He knows evil will happen because he plans on it happening. But he does not do evil. Rather, it was the Judeans who killed Jesus by lawless men. That's what Peter says. He was handed over, you took him. And in fact, in the Greek sentence, Peter puts handed over and took right next to each other to emphasize this transition as though Jesus was held in the plan of God and that plan of God deposited him right into the outstretched hands of the Roman soldiers, the chief priests, the lawless men whom Peter fingers here. You have taken with your lawless hands crucified, and killed him. God's sovereignty is not competitive with human freedom, that either this was done by God or it was done by man, but not both. No, it's a both-and situation. This was done by God and it was done by man. God handed him over and you took him. That's the definition of cooperation. Right? If I hand this to you and you receive it, we are working together to get this thing where it needs to be. Well, God worked with the evil men to hand over Jesus to be crucified and killed. The presence of evil in history is no sign that God does not reign. Rather, it's a sign that God's plan is big enough to encompass even the presence of evil. Well, that's the first step in Peter's two-pronged response to the problem of evil. Prong one, God ordains, directs, bounds, and controls evil. First step. Second step in responding to evil, though, goes further than that. Not only does God ordain and control evil, but God also undoes the consequences of evil. And that's where Peter goes. You have crucified and put to death whom God raised up. How do we know the kingdom is certain? How do we know that evil will not overcome the reign of Jesus Christ? Because death is the greatest and the worst consequence of evil and God has overcome death. This burbling in the sound system is really getting annoying. If somebody wants to shut it off, that would be great. But anyway, let's continue to talk about what Peter says. It's all in the plan of God, right? That the sound system would act up on Easter Sunday. The problem of evil is mitigated when you understand that God controls evil. The problem of evil is solved after a fashion when we come to the realization that God undoes evil. God is able to reverse the consequences of evil by raising His Son from the dead. 
So what does this mean for us? Thank you, Wayne. The crucifixion is evidence of the kingdom's certainty. God is in charge. His plan, his foreknowledge are at work. Evil is part of God's plan. Peter is very clear about that, including the worst evil, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. God's plan includes things like the suffering of Israel in Egypt, the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, the capture and burning of Jerusalem, the first fall of angels and men, the crucifixion of Christ. All of those are part of the plan. The Bible says so. God plans on evil. It contains it within his boundaries and limits. He planned on evils in our recent past, like slavery, and in our present, like abortion. But evil is not carried out by God, though he does plan on it. He does not perform it. As Peter so clearly says, God handed him over. You took him with lawless hands. God gave you the power of choice, plans on and sustains you in your evil choices, but he does not himself choose evil. You do it. God does not do it. The right to be wrong, therefore, does actually exist in a certain sense. In the sense that God underwrites and takes care of even those of his creatures who are actively sinning against him. All of you have noted that, I'm sure, that Christ held in existence and in good health the soldiers who were nailing him to the cross. He gave them that right to be wrong. Nonetheless, he does not sin. Any more than I sin... If, you know, given my son reaches a certain age, I hand him car keys and a credit card and he goes out on the town and uses those things to do evil. Now you all can say to me, at some point, your continued provision of car keys and a credit card reaches the level of willful negligence. But I can't stay off the hook for his behavior forever. To which our only response as Christians is to say attempts to get God off the hook for evil must necessarily end with making evil as powerful as or more powerful than God. Otherwise, we have to bite the bullet and say God planned on evil and in some sense let it into the world. And if you press further on that, then you say, well, did God let it in willingly or unwillingly? If he let it in unwillingly, evil is more powerful than he is. If he let it in willingly, then he let it in willingly. Right? There's no getting God off the hook. All we can say is that an ethical deity, by our human standards, would have terminated the experiment the moment the snake entered the garden. Not what our God did. He took a different path. It looks like negligence to us. But if we could understand everything our God did, 
would he still be our God? It stands to reason that God would have plans, purposes, and goals that are beyond our comprehension. Let me put it this way. Let's go down to Arkansas. Find a hick on the street. And name him our ambassador to the People's Republic of China. (coughs) Is there a chance, maybe even a pretty good chance, that this Arkansas hick would not understand the policies and goals of the People's Republic of China? That he would not understand Washington's intentions or what it wants to signal to Beijing, that he would be a total flop as an ambassador. How much more if we say, I think there are certain people in, this, in these United States who don't understand foreign <coughs> policy. Maybe I'm one of them. Do you think there are certain people in this church who don't understand God's policies? Could we say that the hick knows far more about China than I do about the mind of an infinite, eternal, unchangeable deity? God is telling us, I ordain and plan on evil. And I willingly let it into my world. But I'm not the guilty party. I don't do the evil. You do it. God knows what he's doing. And we will be sure of that when evil is vanquished, when the kingdom comes and Christ's will is done on earth as it is in heaven. Peter is telling us that the resurrection proves that God brings good even out of evil. How can he say this? Well, it's because he believes that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. That the world and God are two different things. Why does Peter insist on this? That there is God on the one side handing Jesus over and that there's wicked men on the other receiving him and nailing him to the cross. Well, if you don't acknowledge that creator-creature distinction and say that reality is fundamentally two, uncreated on the side of God, created on the side of the world, then you must say reality is fundamentally one. And the one handing over and the one receiving were the same one. And at the end of the day, evil is no longer evil. Evil is a step on the path to good. We call this doctrine pantheism, a collapsing of all distinctions, such that there is no difference between God and the world, and ultimately, therefore, no difference between right and wrong, good or evil. Evil is simply the good in seed form, and when the process is finished, we will understand that evil was a necessary part of the total package. So say the pantheists. So says the spirit of our age, age, which is this unifying spirit. It insists on breaking down all boundaries and distinctions. We got into this last night at the gun store. 
What does non-binary mean on the form when you check male, female, or non-binary for the sex of the per person purchasing the gun? Non-binary means I deny the creator-creature distinction. I don't think there's a difference between God and the world. I don't think there's a difference between male and female. I don't think there's a difference between this pulpit and my foot, between the chair and my rear end. They are all one and the same. Just in different phases, at a different point in the process, but in the end, all the drops will merge back into the ocean. We're all the same, really. Peter rejects that doctrine. The crucifixion was wrong. The crucifixion is not some kind of necessary step on the pathway toward the great good of the resurrection. Evil is not some kind of necessary step on the path toward good. Precisely because Christianity teaches this imminent frame that we have a world that is created by God but is not God, we have room for evil to be itself. Evil is bad and will always be bad. It will never become good. It can't become good. It won't become good. God does use evil, though it always remains itself, and he always remains himself. He uses evil to bring about good, but he does not transform evil into good. The evil of those lawless men brought about the good of our salvation. Absolutely. But we don't sing hymns of praise to Pontius Pilate. He was a weakling and a villain. He was not a good person. He was not a step on the path to good. He was evil. But God overruled his evil and brought good out of it anyway. Same goes for your sin and mine. God doesn't sin. Christ dwells in us, but that doesn't make him sinful. Rather, it condemns our sin even more tells us to stop it. Don't sin. Evil is evil. Evil is done in creation by created beings. But God overrules their evil. Jesus was delivered over to wicked men by God's plan. God planned their evil, but they did their evil. God overcame their evil, raising his son from the dead. So believe it. Know the Son of God as the one who not only overrules evil, but also undoes its consequences. Who took death and beat it. Walked out of that tomb 2,000 years ago. He will overcome your evil and raise you from the dead if you trust Him today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would deliver us from this trap of pantheism, from the idea that evil is ultimately just another form of good. Father, help us to see the difference between your plan on the one side and the actions of lawless men on the other side. Yes, you work together with us. You sustain us even when we do wrong. Father, help us not to do wrong anymore to hate it, to only do what you want us to do. Help us to look like your son 
whom you raised up. Father, we praise you that death does not have the last word. That evil will not triumph. That you are more powerful. And that though you willingly allowed it in your creation, you can and will vanquish it. Kick it into hell where it belongs. Lord, bring about that day speedily, we ask. We pray for the fulfillment of the resurrection when you will be all in all. Teach us to number our days and gain a heart of wisdom, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.